Welcome to a special episode of Today in Ohio, normally a news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. In each of our campaign season special episodes, though, we have a conversation with a candidate for statewide office. I'm Chris Quinn, and our chief political writer, Seth Richardson, leads the conversation. Today, we are speaking with Morgan Harper, Democratic candidate for the U.S. Senate. Welcome, Morgan Harper. Thanks for having me. All right, Morgan, let's jump right into it. So kind of the, you know, the top issue, especially as of late, has been inflation. And, I, you know, I want to know what you think the government should do to curb inflation. Yeah, the, the inflation issue and costs increasing on a number of key goods uh, has been a big topic that's come up as I've traveled around the state. And so, you know, when we're looking at, for example, like the increase in, in gas prices that I think we need to be addressing the emergency that is going on right now by implementing emergency solutions. And so that should look like things uh, such as repealing the gas tax that adds, you know, in some cases, 30 cents a gallon um, additional to, to the costs. We need to be considering uh, stopping the windfall profits that's been, that is contributing to this crisis with a lot of the, the big oil companies that are taking advantage of this moment and increasing prices. And, and that you know, could be the case across other sectors as well, you know, food, for example, um, making sure that we don't have companies that are just trying to take advantage and, and continue to add pressure onto to regular folks across our state. Um, so those are some of the, the things that I would recommend in the short term. And then as we look towards you know, medium, long term, I mean, part of the reason why we have folks and entities that are in the position to take advantage of this moment is a lot of concentration of power within certain market sectors, a lot of monopolistic behavior that is happening within certain market sectors. And to address that, I do think that we need to be looking at our antitrust laws, refreshing some of those laws and enforcing them to ensure that we have a more competitive landscape across the economy. When you talk about, um, you know, a temporary relief on the gas tax or temporary repeal of the gas tax, though, uh, you know, there are a lot of studies show that that's kind of a, a negligible impact on pocketbooks and it can have a real impact on infrastructure and, you know, that sort of thing. So why, why you know, push for that as a solution to inflation, especially considering that oil is a global commodity that, you know, isn't necessarily uh, um, beholden to uh, the American market? Yeah, well, that it'll bring immediate relief. I mean, other measures that can be taken to just make sure that we are supporting people through this crisis are things like, you know, extending the child tax credit, for example, to bring down overall costs that are hitting uh, regular families. But, you know, I do think that it will lower the price, that that will have uh, an important impact. And, you know, when we're looking at things around infrastructure, well, we also have some funds that have become available to be able to support those types of projects right now. And I, I think more than anything, we need to be doing whatever is possible to ensure that we don't have working people that are bearing the brunt of this crisis, that we're bringing some immediate measures that can lower costs of, of what their uh, expenses are in the extremely short term. That, that needs to be top priority. And then we can think about some of the long-term needs and priorities around things like infrastructure. You know, you mentioned the uh, child tax credit. I want to do talk. I want to talk about taxes for just a moment. Um, you know, the Trump tax cuts that were kind of his, you know, signature piece of legislation while he was in office. Uh, you know, they're set to expire. Uh, do you think that Congress should let those expire? 
Yeah, I mean, we, <laughs> you know, and this is, this is one of my, my frustrations with, you know, and, and something that has come up with my, my main primary opponent in supporting those is, you know, we need to be doing what's necessary to ensure that we are allowing everyday people across Ohio to be financially stable. Um, that is one of, when, when I talk to a lot of people across the state, economic insecurity is something that comes up a lot. And so we need to be prioritizing policies at the federal level that are gonna support everybody in our state getting a fair shot. And what does that look like? I mean, to me, that has to be ensuring that people have access to, to health care, and that's why I support you know, Medicare for all. We need to be looking at the costs around housing that have also increased quite a bit and making sure that we're taking you know, necessary steps to increase the supply of housing. And so there's so many needs right now that have to be addressed that we need resources at the federal level to be able to support those community level investments and continuing you know, tax cuts to some of very large corporations that really are not in need of that. Um, it doesn't make, doesn't make any sense to me. Well, but included in those tax cuts are tax cuts on, you know, for low-income, middle-income earners, right? And letting those expire could feasibly lead to a higher tax burden on, you know, working-class people. Should, you know, should those be allowed to expire as well? So we don't, it's not, it's not either or to me. I mean, I, I think that we should do away with the tax cuts that have disproportionately affected large corporations, but then continue to now have a strategy moving forward that is going to do what's necessary to support working class people in our state. And so, you know, jump, uh, lumping that all together isn't necessary. And we need to make sure that we have a plan moving forward that is going to support economic, positive economic outcomes for people across our state. And we don't need to also benefit large corporations that don't need the break in order to do that. Well, yeah, but in the short term, they are lumped together where, you know, if the if these expire, which they are set to do, then, you know, it, it is kind of a take one, take all at the moment. So that that's sort of the question. Would, you know, you extend those tax cuts for, you know, the, that, that do affect the, uh, you know, low and middle income earners? I would I would be interested in legislation that does extend tax cuts for middle class, lower income earners, but I just don't think it's necessary to also give tax cuts to very large corporations that don't need it in order to get that done. Okay. Uh, well, so the Intel project has been very big news in Ohio, obviously, uh, you know, chip, bringing chip manufacturers to the state and whatnot, and uh, just semiconductors and microchips in general have been, you know, very big news across the country as, you know, people try to, uh, as we try to reshore some of these jobs, right? Uh, would you vote for the CHIPS Act? So, you know, when we're looking at the investment that we need to make in order to be able to build out our manufacturing sector, I do think it's important that we have incentives that are happening at the federal level to get that done. And so, yeah, I mean, I would be in support of considering things like the CHIPS Act, but this is also where we come back to, well, why has our manufacturing sector moved away? I mean, we have had a lot of you know, companies that have made the decision that they are going to be pursuing what is the, the cheapest way to make their products rather than investing in what we need to do at home here. And so that's where I think we are able to leverage the purchasing power, for example, at the federal level to be able to create um, more incentives for these companies to be able to purchase 
products that are at home um, that are that are manufactured here in Ohio. And that's something that I'm supportive of, because, you know, right now what we have is we have a lot of companies that are pretty much doing whatever they want and and chasing the, the profits. And what we need to do is make sure that we are checking a lot of the concentration of power that has allowed them to get away with this by refreshing our antitrust laws, by having better competition policy that is going to create incentives here at home. And so CHIPS Act is one, one mechanism for doing that in building out the um, semiconductor chip industry. But then there are really a host of different sectors across the economy where we could be um, creating the right incentives for companies to be manufacturing here at home and then also leveraging the purchasing power of the federal government to incentivize that production as well. Well, what do those incentives look like to you? Because, you know, throughout your campaign, you have been very critical of, you know, corporate America. And, you know, I think a lot of people do sometimes have a problem with the way that uh, corporate incentives work, right? They tend to take the form of tax credits or just, you know, slashing tax bills or whatever, right? So what what do corporate incentives look like to you? Well, I mean, just to clarify something, you know, I, I am not in any way critical of the the corporate sector uh, at large. What I, yeah, I, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Let me rephrase. As far as yeah. policy goes toward the corporate sector. Yeah, I mean, what what I what I am in support of, and what I think most people in our state are in support of, is making sure that we have both a thriving private sector and then also communities and people that are prepared to be a part of that private sector. And what we're seeing across our state is that we have a lot of people who are not in a great uh, mental state of mind, that we have a lot of people who are working jobs that aren't keeping up with the cost of living, and that we have a lot of people who are even a bit nervous about the, the state of safety in their communities, for example. And so making sure that we have a plan moving forward for how we're going to ensure that we have a people sector that is able to actually plug into a business sector is top priority for me. And that's where, you know, and why I support policies like Medicare for all, making sure that we have people that are able to access the health care that they need, including mental health care, why I think we need to be raising the federal minimum wage to make sure that the wages that people are earning are keeping up with the cost of living um, and, and, and other policies like that. And, you know, when it when it comes to incentives, you know, incentives can serve a, a good purpose. But what's most important with them, and, and this is something that I've said about, you know, the Intel project specifically, is that we know what the incentives are. We know what commitments have been made in order or when they were provided and that those commitments are followed through with. And so that's where, you know, it's really important to just have transparency around the incentives. It's important to and then have, you know, accountability to make sure that we are getting what we're paying for. So so in your mind, the incentives would look somewhat similar to what the Intel deal looks like or would, would is there a, a reimagining of sort that you would have for, uh, you know, incentives to attract companies in manufacturing? Yeah, I mean, I think incentive, the incentives that happen with the Intel deal are, are, are fine, but it's just having full transparency around what those are. And then also the other thing that we need to consider when these types of large projects are happening is how is it going to impact some of the dynamics that were already occurring on the ground? So take, for example, with Intel, Central Ohio has seen, and that's where I'm based, you know, a lot of increases in costs around housing that we haven't had an appropriate level of investment in public transportation, for example, how are people going to be able to access these jobs? How are we going to ensure that we have you know, minority contractors that are getting um, an ability to reap some of the benefits from these deals? So all of these things you know, need to be considered, and that's why it's so important, important to have 
a lot of transparency in order for the public and the media to play its role in holding folks accountable and, and Intel specifically in this case accountable to um, follow through with those commitments and then also that we are in touch with local, state, federal elected officials to ensure that we are balancing some of these, the benefits with also the impacts to the surrounding community of having these types of you know, developments come in our area. So uh, you are on the younger side of candidates, so I'm sure that you have some familiarity with this as well. You, uh, you know, used to work at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau as an attorney. Um, and I want to know what do you think the uh, government should do about the you know, mounting student loan debt, not necessarily on the, uh, the cost of education side for the moment, but the debt that is already out there. Yeah, so I'm in support of, of canceling debt. And you know, one of the things that I saw when I was at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau where I worked during the Obama administration is just how much this burden has now extended to so many different parts of our, our population. I mean, I think a lot of times it is presented as you know, a young person's issue. And I do hear from a lot of young people, you know, including people in their 20s, about how nervous they are about the debt that they're taking on or that they're facing with the education that they're pursuing but also that we now have people who are my age, who are almost 40 and over 40, um, who have also you know, taken on this kind of debt burden and is impacting their decisions around having a family or purchasing a home. And then you know, in, one, in one area that I don't think is talked about enough is just how many older people are also on the hook for this level of debt burden. Um, you know, CFPB did research that showed we have a lot of grandparents, a lot of parents who have been the guarantors of some of this debt. And, and then also are facing you know, a financial pinch as they're aging and on fixed incomes. And so that's why I think it's so important that we you know, do cancel it. I mean, this is one of the commitments that was made during the, the presidential election. And it's, it's not just giving people a pass, it's, it's actually recognizing that you know, this will be an economic uh, benefit to a lot of working class folks across the, across the state, across the country, and, and, and much needed, you know, especially right now. Are you at all concerned with what the effects might be, um, budgetary effects might be, if because uh, I assume that we were talking about uh, federal student loans, since the you know private student loan industry is a little bit more difficult. You can't just uh, necessarily you know go at it in one sweep or anything. Um, but in terms of you know federal student loans, what concerns do you have about um, you know that effect on the budget or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, with all of these things, you know, we need to consider, um, you know, how how it overall would impact budget concerns. But I would just say, I mean, you know, when we're talking about things like the tax cuts that we've given to, you know, very large corporations, when we talk about, you know, policies like are in the in the healthcare space that are going to be able to actually lower all overall costs of care and some of the policies that I'm rec recommending, like Medicare for all, there's a way to balance this out. And my main focus will be making sure that as we do these things, we also are prioritizing the needs of working people. I think we've had, you know, a generation of leadership that has really put more stress and burden on everyday folks in places like our state in Ohio. And, and we need to now make sure that we have leadership that's going to prioritize um, providing a little bit more relief so that people have the opportunity to pursue careers and trades and all of that without accumulating this level of debt. Um, that's going to be, you know, one of my primary areas of focus. And, you know, the other thing I'll say there, too, and, and about how to um, influence the private market, for example, you know, at the, at the CFPB, we did a lot of research when I was there and started a rulemaking on uh, overdraft fees. 
And that's one where, you know, it didn't get to the place yet of finishing and, and implementing a rule, but we did see movement in just talking about it and being able to, you know, bring more attention to the issue that then resulted in what we've seen years later now from some financial institution, private financial institutions, that they are doing away with overdraft fees altogether. And so it really is important to have leadership at the federal level to take a stand about what in many cases has been predatory debt that folks have accumulated um, and, and to let you know, a signal to the private sector that they too could take action to do the right thing here. And that, you know, and I'll just say, I mean, one additional thing, because this is, I believe, a very important issue, uh, is that we have, um, that there is sometimes this sense and, you know, a talking point that's thrown out there of, oh, well, we're, you know, giving people a pass who, you know, maybe find themselves in a situation, like I was very fortunate to be able to get, you know, financial aid and scholarships to go to places like Stanford Law School, um, but that people, if we, if we relieve the dead, it's, it's helping people who have gone to these really, you know, elite institutions and, and giving them a free pass. And again, it's like most of the people I'm talking to who have this level of debt burden, it is much more common that they are folks like a woman I met who was pursuing, you know, licensing to become a hairdresser in cosmetology school who now have a couple um, tens of thousands of dollars in debt or, you know, someone who works on my staff who is trying to pursue a nursing degree and then had some life issues come up that prevented her from finishing it and now just has, you know, debt that is just continuing to accumulate and in, in the interest. And so uh, we need to make sure that people have a clear understanding of what the, the folks are who are impacted by this level of debt burden look like and, um, and correct the record there. Uh, you know, another issue that has obviously been front and center over the past few weeks is Ukraine. And uh, a lot of focus has been on the, you know, sort of the defense side of it, right? How involved should the United States be in the conflict? Uh, very large Ukrainian population here in Ohio. And I want to know if you think um, refugees from Ukraine should be accepted into Ohio? And if so, should there be any limits on how many refugees we accept? Yeah, I mean, what's happening in Ukraine is is really devastating and seeing just how brazen Putin is being and, and the invasion there. I mean, not not surprising based on what we know about him, but definitely very difficult to watch. And, and my heart goes out to the Ukrainians and, you know, both there and then those that are here and of Ukrainian descent in Ohio. And and that's why I do think that, you know, we need to take strong action and pushing back against what's happening. Um, but then also, yeah, I mean, I, we do need to be holding up and, you know, in our, our role as global citizens and being a place of, for refugees to come when they are facing um, dangerous conditions at home. And so, you know, an exact number there I wouldn't be able to say, but I, I think we have a great infrastructure in Ohio for accepting refugees. We have a lot of great organizations that do that work. And so we are well situated to be able to uh, welcome folks here. And, and the only other thing, you know, I would, I would note is that um, and that we should have, you know, that same same policy to welcome folks from a lot of places who are experiencing um, uh, harm and, and threats right now. And, and that's something that I know a lot of the organizations in Ohio that do work in this space are really focused on. Well, that actually kind of leads into a follow up I had about that. Um, you know, do you do you think that what should refugee caps in the United States, maybe not necessarily just in Ohio, what should they look like or uh, should there be refugee caps of any kind? 
I mean, I think we need to always look at just balancing, you know, what resources we have available to be able to absorb, you know, additional folks coming into the country with uh, with what our obligations are to be a good a good steward of, you know, of a, a global a member of a global community and uh, and to uphold what really is one of our core American values of being a place where. Uh, immigrants and refugees are welcome and can build a life here. I mean, I'll just say, you know, from a personal perspective, my mom immigrated to Ohio um, in the 1960s from from Trinidad to pursue a better life that her her mom wanted for her, and that's what put her in a position to become a public school teacher, contribute to her community, adopt me and my brother, and um, and so you know those those stories are ones that make up our country and are very important. But yeah, of course, we always need to you know, balance what, just what our resources are available to do that um, against you know, our need to, and our desire to want to continue to be a welcoming place for people from all over. So, you know, over the last two years, we've been really obviously uh, engulfed in this coronavirus pandemic, and it does seem to be winding down at least a little bit, um, you know, knock on wood, right? Uh, I want to know, what did you learn from the coronavirus pandemic? It's a great question. Uh, you know, it's, it's obviously a very difficult time uh, and just seeing, you know, the level of loss that we all experienced during the, the and continue to, to see and experience during the pandemic. I mean, I have a close family friend, neighbor um, who passed away from the coronavirus within a week of learning that she had it. And, you know, just just seeing that kind of loss happen so quickly that you were not expecting is um, is really tragic, and and so you know that's the first thing that comes to mind is just that we've all really been you know traumatized through um, through seeing what's happened over the last couple of years. But then, you know, I've also seen a lot of us come together to really look out for one another, and that's been inspiring to me. I mean, at the beginning of the pandemic in the spring and summer twenty. 20, I, I worked with a lot of folks on the ground here in central Ohio um, as part of the organization I co-founded Columbus Stand Up to, uh, to get resources to people. I mean, we didn't really have a lot of federal leadership on this front to make sure that people had PPE, um, et cetera, but we were able to get resources together, distribute 30,000 masks to people throughout Franklin County, including elderly folks who were entirely homebound. Um, to our homeless shelters that hadn't really received a lot of resources at that point. So, um, and then started a rideshare program to get people to their vaccine appointments and got almost 500 people there working with our, our transit authorities. So um, that was inspiring, you know, that people were really stepping up for each other and, and looking out for each other um, in the absence of necessarily anybody, you know, telling us what to do. We just inherently knew what we had to do. And, and then I do think on the other side of it, um, I've found in talking to a lot of people that there's a better understanding of our collective vulnerability and, um, and the need for making sure moving forward that all of us are in a, a strong position. Uh, for example, you know, I, I don't think that there was always as much awareness around you know, just some of our, our retail workers and, um, and people you know, who are considered essential workers during the pandemic and just their level of vulnerability in the moment of dealing with the pandemic, but then also just generally, you know, in terms of um, not really having a backstop of great health care. We saw a lot of people in our state 
you know, lose healthcare coverage during the pandemic. And so, you know, that's one specific area where I think I've seen people move to understand the importance of maybe having a system that's less tied to employer care, for example. So, yeah, many learnings. I think we'll probably be learning for a while, <laughs> just you know, all the impacts that the pandemic has had on us. But at the end, I think we really showed each other just the strength of our community to come together and, and look out for us when we, when we needed it most. So, you know, given the current dynamics of, you know, the U.S. Senate and just Washington in general, right? Um, you know, I know you've listed a lot of goals, but assuming you take office, what what would your signature piece of legislation be? Like, what what is it that you think that you can get through Congress and, uh, you know, really kind of hold up high as a, as a goal achieved? Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, right now, it's hard for anyone to make guarantees about what you can pass from a legislative perspective in, in Congress, in the Senate. More than anything, what I'm coming with is an understanding of what have been blocks in that, um, that's been blocking Congress from being more effective in passing legislation and committed to um, pushing back against that and, and moving with urgency to try to break through, to really you know, get resources to, towards, to our communities across the state. And so, you know, for example, I mean, what are some of those, those blocks? Things like the filibuster, which is why I support getting, getting rid of it, um, and some of those you know, procedural barriers. But then you know, a, an area that I've already mentioned a couple of times and that I, I would point to as an area with some bipartisan momentum to actually potentially get legislation through is in the realm of, of antitrust competition policy. I mean, being able to work with folks from both sides of the aisle to move forward an agenda there that's going to you know, check the power of, of big tech that is a threat to our democracy, to our economy, um, and then also you know, in other market areas be able to create a more competitive landscape that's going to allow small, medium-sized businesses to, to compete. Um, in addition to putting our, you know, our workers in a, in a stronger position as well would be a big priority. And then, you know, in terms of other things that I want to move forward, uh, Medicare for all, you know, is a, is a big priority, making sure that we have universal health care. I think that's going to be a boon to our, our health um, and overall health outcomes, but then also uh, really support our businesses that will not have to be, you know, saddled with this burden of providing that benefit, and and increasing, you know, the minimum wage is another priority that I would point to, um, given that you know people just aren't making enough money to be able to keep up with the cost of living. And then, you know, finally, I would just say, I mean, and especially with everything that's going on in the Supreme Court. Uh, it, it will be a priority to make sure that we're doing what's necessary to protect abortion access. Uh, and that you know, is something that is a threat based on the current makeup of the Supreme Court and, and some of the movements there. And so that's why you know, I support moving forward efforts to codify Roe v. Wade into law to, again, we've got to get rid of the filibuster, but then also consider things like um, you know, rebalancing the Supreme Court to make sure that we, we are able to protect this right. Let me let me follow up on that one, Seth. Um, the the i the idea of of getting things through in a bipartisan bipartisan manner is challenged these days. Uh, I don't know yeah. if you saw the debate by the Republican candidates running for Senate yesterday, but the, the all but one looked into the camera and adamantly told the lie that the election was stolen. You're not dealing with people who are willing to be reasonable if they're they're making that kind of ridiculous statement. There was a time where 
candidates for these offices would think they could get to Washington and by horse trading and talking and negotiating, you might be able to come to some kind of consensus. But you don't have that today. Is there something in your background, in your makeup, that that should give voters confidence that you could change that, knowing what the current landscape is? And you need to look no further than last week's Supreme Court justice confirmation hearings to see those divides. Yeah, I mean, you're you're absolutely right that we aren't we aren't really living in, in normal times right now. Unfortunately, we have a lot of people in positions in Congress that the goal is obstruction and spreading lies and misinformation. And I wouldn't waste a lot of time trying to convince such people of, you know, the benefits of, of anything. There are no ideas. And and it's it's really I mean, it's it's sad. It's heartbreaking that this is where we're at in the United States of America at this point. And so, I mean, I do think that we need to, though, take that head on and, and call, it, call it out. I mean, this is, you know, what I've done in trying to check a lot of the, the rhetoric that, you know, Josh Mandel, for example, has put out in, the, in the, his campaign of, of lies and, you know, is, is the, and point out the contradiction to try to discredit these people. Um, you say you care about law enforcement. Okay, well, we, we saw the loss of life of law enforcement on January 6th. So what are you talking about? You say you care about veterans who are homeless. Okay, name one policy that you would suggest to actually solve that problem, to make sure that we have more vets who are able to be in homes and are not facing homelessness. And, and we have to be aggressive here. And so, I mean, that would be my whole take of how we counter the folks that are in there. We can't, we can't necessarily you know, discharge them from office, people who are in the United States Senate, those are subject to elections, but we need to be very aggressive about pointing out their lies and not wasting a lot of time waiting for them to do the right thing. They aren't going to. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's really just, a, it's a sad state of affairs. But the other reason why I'm, I would say that I'm running is because I had a front row seat to how some of these dynamics were starting to build in the United States Congress when I was at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and recognizing that we weren't dealing with honest brokers and that we need to have you know, a more aggressive approach to be able to counter that and then push for the legislation that we need and also building support at the ground level that will support people who are looking to be in elected office to do something for us, to actually bring resources and support for our communities you know, across the state of Ohio and across this country. And that's one of my key messages of this campaign is, look, if you live in the state of Ohio and you care about you know, democracy and government doing anything at all, and we can have lots of conversations about what those things are. We need to be getting a Democrat elected in this election, and I believe that I'm the Democrat to get it done. And so, you know, that that's just so important right now. And and like I said, I mean, no guarantees once there about who we we can't control these people, but we need to be aggressively countering their lies with both honesty about how they're lying, and then a positive vision for how we're moving forward. Well, building off that question just real quick, I want to uh, – is there – do you have an idea of a Republican who's currently in the Senate that you could see yourself working with, and what, what could you see yourself working with them on? Well, I mean, here's the thing. So, like, when we look at, um, you know, some of the, the antitrust legislation that's moving forward, which is an area where I said, you know, there's bipartisan support for moving forward on that, there are Republicans that have said that they – would be supportive of such legislation in theory, <laughs> right? 
Um, but what we've seen from a lot of them is that when push comes to shove and they you know, actually have to maybe vote on something and, and stand up to you know, some of the, the forces in their party that just want it to be about Trump, they might not necessarily do that. And so I, I wouldn't want to... I wouldn't want to say, you know, for sure, because we just haven't really had a high level of trust among a lot of these folks to be able to do the right thing. But I am very committed. And this is, again, you know, informed from my perspective at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau in developing regulation and policy is you meet with everyone. You bring everyone to the table. You have industry and businesses and consumer groups and individuals who have been impacted by a particular market sector. And you come together to develop what is the best policy for us. And that would be in my approach to the United States Senate. But, you know, it's it has to also be with people who are looking to solve problems and and making sure that their their goal is not just obstruction. And I have one uh, final question, Seth, before we end it. Uh, which of the Republican candidates would you most like to face off against in November? And if that question makes you a little bit wiggly, which one of them would you enjoy most debating as you head to November? I think all of the Republicans who are running are, are really a, a sad reflection uh, of where we, we stand um, in, in terms of where that party stands right now in our state and increasingly you know, across the country and in Washington, in that you know, it's a lot of people who are continuing to try to get Trump's support. Um, and, and so we need, to, we need to make sure that we are able to beat whoever comes out of that primary. And, and that is why I am running. I mean, I have a vision for how we can motivate the turnout that we need to be able to win and have somebody who actually is seeking to get to Washington to accomplish things, to win, and, and being able to defeat whoever, whoever the Republican is. And I just do think um, that it will take you know, a, different, a different kind of person and a different kind of um, politician coming from our side to be able to have a shot at this thing. Uh, you know, one of the most common questions I get in traveling around the state is, you know, why should I trust you? And that's from urban, rural, you know, smaller, more populous counties. Why should I trust you? Because there's such a high level of disillusionment right now. And being able to point to people and say, look, I, I am different because, you know, I, I'm not bought and sold before we start talking about policy because, you know, I'm grassroots. I really just depend on everyday people believing what I'm saying. And I'm not looking to make a career out of this. I'll self-impose term limits to be able to just get there and move with the urgency that I know we're all moving with every day to try to get by. Um, and that's what I find breaks through with a lot of people. And, and then what am I trying to do? I mean, just make sure everybody gets a fair shot. That's what most of us that's what most of us believe in. And we just need to make sure that we have a Democratic nominee that's going to be able to make people believe enough to turn out to vote. All right. So you're, you're not going to answer my question about which one of them you'd most like to face off against. I'll leave that to the Republican <laughs> primary voters, but I can I, I will be prepared to beat whoever emerges okay. from that. Seth, anything anything else? Cloud uh, no. <laughs> okay. uh, Morgan, thanks so much for uh, joining us. I really appreciate it. Okay, no, and that, go ahead, Morgan. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And that does it for a special episode of Today in Ohio. Join us for our regular episodes each weekday when we discuss the news of the day. <laughs>